Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Fraser Roberts, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Intech Risk Management. Thanks for coming on, Fraser. Well, thanks for having me. Before we go, let me remind our guests that Adam and I are going to do a commercial real estate podcast after show once we're done our conversation with Fraser. So stick around after the jingle. Adam and I will do a little bit of a sort of unplugged digestion of what we learned and what we thought about the interview. But Fraser, now that's out of the way, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining. We always start these with just a bit of history and background of our guests. So maybe just you know explain who you are and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, so I'm Fraser Roberts. I'm the CEO of Intech Risk Management. I've been working with the company for a little over 15 years. Took over the business actually from my father in 2014 and have been managing and running the business ever since. Intech is a independent insurance and risk management advisory firm, which is unique in our industry in that we do not sell insurance. We are purely an advisory firm only. So we receive no compensation in relation to sales, but we're mainly known for our lender advisory work, where we act on behalf of most of the larger financial institutions in Canada and into the U.S. and across the EU. On a personal basis, I took over the business from my father. I started, well, actually, when I finished university, I promised myself I would never get into the insurance industry. Having watched my father spend his whole career in it, I had no interest. And in fact, in university, I spent my time tree planting and landscaping and doing everything I could not to be in an office on a full-time basis. But After university, I had to get a little bit more serious. And so I really was looking at two different options. One was to go into insurance and follow my father. And the other was, which I thought I was going to do, which was get into commercial real estate. Ultimately, knowing the opportunity of having a family business, I decided that I'd give it insurance a shot and I'd give it at least one year and see if I enjoyed it. But at that time, my father wouldn't hire me out of school. So I didn't get to join Intech right out of the gate. But instead, he pushed me in the direction of joining an insurance brokerage. And so I worked for Aon Reed Stenhouse for a few years, learning the ropes in the construction and surety division there. And so I really learned the basics of insurance and bonding with respect to construction and worked on a number of large construction accounts there. You know, as time went on, just wanted to get a little bit more exposure and advance a little quicker than was happening at Aon. And so joined my father's company and have been there ever since. So it's been quite the journey over the last 15 years. As I said, I didn't expect to be in it for more than a year, but found that I really enjoyed it. I always thought that insurance was going to be a bit of a boring topic. And many people, when we talk about insurance, do fall asleep in our presentations. But (laughs) at the end of the day, it's a people business. And once you learn the fundamentals of it, it's really an interesting business and have really grown to enjoy it. And I'm glad I I stuck with it. I'll argue that it has been a very boring industry up until the last year and a half or two years. And it's now gotten very exciting. Uh, And I guess we should probably explain that for those that are kind of holding on to the rope. The insurance market has been hardening. Insurance premiums have been skyrocketing in certain different sectors, but in commercial real estate in particular. Adam and I did an interview with a gentleman named Jeffrey Charles about eight to 10 months ago, where he kind of described to us that as a result of all the sort of the catastrophic events that have been occurring over the last four or five years, floods, hurricanes, forest fires, etc., that the insurance market really has been spending a lot more than they're making ultimately. And so that's had sort of a negative repercussion on premiums as insurance companies start to recalculate, recalibrate just how they're going to be a profitable business and probably recoup some of their losses over the last number of years. And so that's why we've got Fraser back on here to kind of just pick up where Jeffrey left off eight to 10 months ago, just talk about what the 2021 year looks like going forwards. But before we go there, I want to keep 
picking up on the personal side of the story, do you have siblings? I do. Yes. I have one sister. She's also involved in the business. In fact, she runs our company over in Europe. Long story short, we had a few American clients that were lending into the EU and just so happened at the same time, she had fallen in love with somebody that was living over there. And so she decided to make a move over and has grown a nice successful business over there, which is why we're now fairly active throughout the EU. So neither of you could escape. Your dad had it all <laughs> locked down, eh? Couldn't get Absolutely. out. Couldn't in, get in, out. In fact, it's worse than that in that at one time, my father ran the company. My mother was the accountant and my sister and I were both involved. So it was the whole family. And you can imagine how interesting our family dinners were uh, <laughs> yeah. for anybody coming and, and joining us. And your 19-month-old, what does he do for you at the company? <laughs> He's getting signed up soon. My father's already looking at trying to get him trained in, um, to review a commercial mortgage document. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's actually a really interesting story because I don't think this happens very often. And what has it been like kind of growing up in this world where it's really a family-run business? And now, I mean, you are the CEO, so you've more or less taken over. And maybe just describe, I mean, before we get to sort of the nitty-gritty of just what's going on in the insurance market, and just I want to set the table for our listeners. We're going to get into just really what's transpiring in the commercial real estate insurance market and what's happening within sort of down to the details of individual insurance coverages. But let's just ask this one last question. What has it been like kind of working for your dad, working up the ranks in the company, and then eventually taking over and trying to establish yourself, get your own sort of fingerprints on the company, but respecting what your father had built? Yeah, absolutely. It's been great for me growing up, you know, my father building a business. I didn't get to spend a ton of time with him when I was younger. And for the 10 or so years that we worked very closely together, I mean, I shadowed him really. I spent most days going from meeting to meeting with him and really learning the business. So it was a great learning experience. I mean, my father has now, he's got over 50 years of experience in the industry and, and is a wealth of knowledge. So certainly a great person to learn from, but also just on a personal level was a fantastic experience being able to spend all of that time with him and really getting to know him in a different way. There's challenges that come with working in a family business. I'm sure everyone that's in one understands that, that separating from work can be a challenge. You know, my mother used to force us to stop talking about insurance at dinner, and we still have to try hard to do that. But Sports, sports, just talk about the leaks, yeah, right? Yeah, it's always a good one for sure. We've been for a little while in politics, but we try to avoid that these days as well. But I think it's been an overall positive experience. My father really built a company with a great reputation and was really well known. But I think in a lot of cases... The company was really known for Rory Roberts and not by the name Intac as much. And so part of my sister and my goal was to really transition from him and try to build the brand of Intac up. And so that's something that we've been actively working on now for really the last 10 years. And I think successfully transitioned where, where a lot of people that are working with us now certainly have never worked with my father and it's been a successful transition. That said, you know, respecting sort of his business model and the approach to insurance and to advisory services that he really developed, our goal really has been to take it just to another level, add some structure, really try to standardize process and grow the business beyond what he did. I mean, he spent over 30 years building it and certainly had built a nice base for us to jump from and continue to grow. And so part of that has been developing into new markets. Part of it's been offering services on different types of assets outside of sort of commercial real estate, getting involved in infrastructure and project finance type transactions and other areas that the banks lend into, M&A and, and those types of things. And so our focus has been trying to really just build upon and, and continue to grow what was his vision. I find it really rewarding. My father retired in 2012, but for those that know him, he's continued to sort of consult and advise on the side. He's a hard guy to get rid of. He sends me emails on a regular basis and 
keeps me up to speed as to what's going on in the market on a regular basis. But he's starting to slow down these days and well-deserved. He's been a great mentor for me and we feel very fortunate to be able to sort of follow in his footsteps. It's a great story and I can definitely relate. I come from a real estate family and for the handful of us that are not in commercial real estate, probably find our dinner conversations extraordinarily boring. And same thing, my father's retired, but I'll talk to him a couple of times a week and all he wants to do is talk about what's going on and deals in the market and you know just can't stop paying attention. So a lot of that resonated with me. I, I like the story quite a bit. So let's talk about the hardening market. You know, Aaron mentioned it briefly at the start. It's not just, of course, the premiums going up, which is a critical part of it, especially to investors, but there's also areas of insurance now that are tougher to get, even if you want to pay for it. And so it's causing a lot of problems. The way that Aaron and I experience it is we require insurance for our loans and mm-hmm. we're frequently running into issues in and around funding time trying to get mortgages closed with satisfactory insurance. So we're highly aware of it as well. So maybe if we get into a little more of what that means and maybe compare this to, you know, you said 15 years in the business. Have you ever seen an insurance market the way it is now. So maybe describe what's happened over the last year and the headwinds that you're facing trying to properly insure buildings. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly not. I've not been involved in a market quite like this. And in fact, the broader insurance market and global insurance market really hadn't seen a hard market cycle like this. If we want to call it a hard market, there's diverging opinions on that. But certainly this market has not been seen since, I believe, 2001 which is one of the longer soft market cycles that we've ever seen. And so there's actually a lot of people in the industry, it's an issue in the insurance industry altogether, where there's a lot of brokers, a lot of underwriters that have never been through a situation like this. And so that does have an impact on clients in the end. And companies need advice and help to navigate their way through such a difficult market. I think you're absolutely right. Things are affected on two levels. One is price increases, but the other is that coverage gets rescinded and the terms and conditions that we're used to getting and never having an issue getting can suddenly become difficult. And so it's making every transaction a little bit more challenging, whether it be a commercial mortgage transaction or insurance renewal. We're finding it takes a little bit more time to get through the process and people have to be a little bit more flexible in understanding just what is available. The challenge, of course, is that the market is changing so quickly that what was available three months ago may not be available today and what's available today might not be available three months from now. And trying to navigate a constantly changing environment is a real challenge. And certainly that's where a company like Intech can help guide people through it, as can a good insurance broker. And so, you know, it's been a challenge for us as well, but we're seeing the same things you are. Clients coming to us with really challenging renewals where they've seen their cost of insurance rise 20, 30%. And those are on accounts that have no loss experience or favorable loss experiences to other accounts where they have had, I mean, these are the worst cases is where they've had bad fire losses or shock losses that have occurred, could be fire, flood, or some other large loss. And they're seeing insurance premiums raising by as much as 500%. And so it's really creates challenges for organizations. And it's really important now more than ever to really understand the finer details of how the insurance industry works. You know, I think prior to this sort of market, because the cost of insurance was really at historical lows and we had been through such a long-term soft market cycle, people were used to buying insurance kind of like a commodity and just believing it was going to be there and not needing to really understand the finer details, not have to pay attention too much to loss control or risk management. And certainly that is changing and those that are getting into the weeds on it are going to fare a lot much better going forward. Let me just reiterate something that Fraser said there, because I think people wouldn't necessarily believe it. If you have a building or you're an operator of a building and it has a history of claim, I think you called it sort of a shock event, so that's fire, flood, or something along the likes, 
your insurance premiums upon renewal can increase by up to 500%. So if you were paying, I think in per unit values, if you're paying 200 a unit, so let's say you own a hundred plex, you're paying $20,000 a year, you may start paying 50, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a year for your insurance. So it used to be a really minor line item. Like if you're underwriting it, I'm thinking from a mortgage perspective, but you're just looking at whether you're doing pro formas for acquisitions or whatever, insurance was, I don't know, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, was like one, two, three percent of the expense ratio, right? Like really, really minimal. And it's now creeping into that five, seven, even higher percent range. So it's becoming a meaningful expense. Right? I think people before, as you said, it was a commodity. It really was a rounding error at the end of the day. And I didn't really think about it. Now, all of a sudden, I think, I mean, we're seeing it on a regular basis. We, you know, we're doing 80 to 100 new loans a month. And still to this point, we're finding a client just taking it for granted and showing up, quite frankly, at the closing table, unable to acquire insurance. Let's start wide and get narrower. So maybe just talk about sort of the major things you're seeing that are challenging clients. You mentioned shock events that are impeding them from acquiring insurance or their premiums are going up. What other kind of issues can arise that can prevent clients from really getting the insurance they need or charging them an extreme premium? Yeah. So certainly, I mean, a shock loss is probably the worst. If in the last couple of years, you've experienced a large fire or flood or other major event, that's going to be a major block to getting insurance. Beyond that, frequency of events, you may not have a lot of any large event, but if you have a frequency of loss, whether it be a large number of slip and falls or the same type of water damage events happening repeatedly, those are going to be red flags for an insurer because what they're doing now, insurers are looking at risk and the leaders in the insurers are directing their underwriters to be a lot more strict and have a lot more discipline in what types of risk they write. And so they're obviously looking for accounts that are well managed and well risk managed, more importantly. Beyond that, I think things that do impact the ability to get insurance are certainly our asset class, construction type. Some asset classes are looked at more favorably than others. Right now, multi-unit residential is probably one of the more difficult classes to get insured. And if you add a wood frame element to that, you're going to make it even tougher. Wood why is, why is that, Fraser? I mean, wood frames, we can talk about that's fire, but why just multifamily in specific? Is that just because the tenants are less engaged or I guess have less skin in the game? So they're maybe causing yeah. more damage or... Yeah, I think there's twofold. And it's condo and apartment. I think you're right. I mean, you have a lot of tenants that don't necessarily understand how to manage certain things within their own units. And so you have what you have is a frequency really of water damage claims. So we talk about like what's driving losses in today's market. Insurers are less worried about fire and they're more worried about water damage. Water is the new fire is what the saying goes. And so in multi-unit residential units, we see a lot more frequency of water damage claims, whether it be overflowing of a toilet, somebody setting off the sprinkler system in their unit. There's a lot of losses happening in, in that area. And I think that's likely the largest driver on a property perspective. And the other thing that happens, and this is more of an issue for apartment building owners, is it's difficult to enforce that tenant actually maintains their own insurance. And so a loss that originates within a unit that is the fault of the tenant, you would hope as a commercial landlord, you would hope that you'd be able to recover from the commercial tenant. But in the case of residential tenants, often they have no insurance or if they have insurance, it's a very low low amount. And so a lot of these types of losses end up hitting the landlord. And so as a result, that's really the driving factor, I think, in why insurers are shying away from residential. And we're seeing the same thing on construction. Now, construction is a little bit different, but multi-unit residential has always been a concern. 
There's a couple of factors there. Again, a lot of it is water damage claims, especially with high rise. We've been seeing a frequency of water damage events occurring. Actually, one of the unexpected benefits of everyone being home is actually the severity of water damage claims has reduced because people are less likely to have left the tap running and left their apartment or their condo. And so we actually have seen a decrease in the frequency of those claims over the last year, but that's been a major driver historically. So yeah, I always point to water damage. I mean, you know, there are fires that break out in kitchens as well and these types of events that end up creating a frequency that insurers shy away from. So of the three of us, I have the least exposure to insurance and that I see the insurance for the deals that I'm working on closing. And I've had a lot of situations where we struggled to get there, but we did ultimately get satisfactory insurance. Aaron would see a wider spectrum because he would see all the deals that are the entire First National Department is working on, but you would see the broadest of all of us. So how often are you seeing, I mean, it doesn't have to be specifically for mortgage lending, although it sounds like this a big part of your business. How often are you running situations where you have to call up a client and say, I cannot insure that. Like I've exhausted every avenue and I simply cannot provide insurance. Is that happening and how often? Well, it doesn't happen a lot to us. I mean, we certainly have, and to talk about our business, I mean, we have about 60% of our business is acting as advisors on commercial mortgage transactions. So that is a huge part of it. In those cases, of course, we're not the ones buying insurance. We are the ones that have to review and advise the lender through that process. So we are encountering it where borrowers are coming and saying that they're unable to obtain insurance. Personally, I've worked with a couple of clients that had a really hard time getting insurance. Ultimately, when push came to shove, we have been able to find coverage. It takes a little bit of maneuvering to do so. One of the things that I think that happens, quite frankly, is there's a wide range of capability amongst insurance brokers, right? I mean, the insurance brokerage world is huge and you have those that primarily sell homeowners insurance and they have a big book of homeowners that purchase insurance from them. And then occasionally they get asked to do some sort of commercial risk and place insurance for one of their clients' apartment buildings or some other type of building. Those brokers may only have access to one or two insurers. They may not actually have relationships with the broader insurance market. And so what we find is by engaging more than one insurance broker, often we're able to find coverage. And we've had to do that in a couple of cases where, I mean, exactly that happened. You wouldn't know it from talking to the broker, but we understand that there are certain brokers that have access to a much larger suite of insurers. And so, you know, like Jeff Charles's business, they work with most of the major insurance companies in Canada, if not all, and they'd be able to do a much wider canvassing of the market than some of the smaller guys. And it's not to talk negatively about the small guys. They, they do an important job. It's just that when in this type of environment, if you don't have the right insurer and a relationship with that insurer, then you might not be able to get the insurance coverage that you need for your client. I want to stick to brokers, but I'll just keep our listeners up to date with, we're going to get into more of the nitty gritty. We'll talk about replacement values and co-insurance and maybe business interruption insurance or whatever else kind of comes up. So we're going to get into the real nitty gritty in a second, but let's stick to brokers for a quick minute because I hear stories where clients engage brokers, that broker takes it to eight, nine, 10 shops. But I guess, I think you're iterating it, you're saying it nicely, but the quality of the broker and the skills of the broker does have an impact on the ability to acquire the insurance that's necessary, right? And I hear stories where at times, Brokers take it eight or nine. The broker basically comes back and says, I couldn't find you coverage. Now that client scrambling, they got to get the mortgage. Now they've got to engage another broker. And that makes it way more complicated now because that broker doesn't necessarily know who's already been engaged. Maybe just talk about, let's pretend our listeners are all real estate owners. What's the best approach here? I mean, you don't name the best brokers, but just 
maybe, as you indicated, going to the larger firms or going to more reputable firms in this particular hardened market to avoid that commodity shopper, to get the more experienced broker? Like, is that just smart business paying up for brokers? I'm so ignorant to what insurance brokers value is. Maybe just speak to that community. Yeah. So I think that, and we do this all the time. We get hired all the time to do a broker RFP and help a client select a new insurance broker. If you're doing that and trying to get quotes for insurance back at the same time, whether it be for a project or a new insurance placement, it has to be managed because the way that the insurance industry works is that if you approach a broker and say, go buy me insurance, at that point in time, they could call 20 or 30 insurance companies, reserve rights with that insurer, and they've now blocked that insurer from speaking to any other broker. And so any type of marketing process where you're going to have multiple brokers compete for your business has to be managed. And you have to ensure that you really, I think, identify which insurance companies they have a great relationship with and allocate insurers to the various brokers and then let them go out and compete with one another. It's a process that we run well. And you really do, through that process, see pricing drop. So you don't necessarily have to go to a big, what we call alpha house broker, like an Aon or Marsh in order to canvas the market. It doesn't hurt to have one of those in your pocket. And for larger companies, they might be dealing with a big alpha house already, and it might be beneficial to them to also bring in a regional or a local broker and have the three of them compete. And we run these RFPs all the time. It's not always the case that the big guy wins. It is often, we do find that a smaller regional or local broker can come with the best terms. So at the end of the day, relationship between a broker and his underwriter is what's going to drive price. But depending on what the risk is and what's happening in the market, we see one broker may dominate every RFP we run for a good six-month period. But then as the market shifts a little bit, suddenly we see another broker doing a much better job and coming in with better rates. And so we encourage clients. Ultimately, you want to have a good relationship with your broker and you want to build a longer-term relationship, but it is good to test that relationship every three to five years. And sort of risk management principles would suggest that you should be shopping your broker services at least every five years. And certainly any broker listening to this is not going to like me for saying that. What happens is complacency sets in and they're constantly focused on how to bring in new business. And so it is good business practice in general to at least test and make sure that they're still looking after your interest in the best way possible. This podcast has not generated much hate mail, but you might have just done the first <laughs> one. Let us know what feedback you get from that comment. So I'd love to know if this podcast has finally generated hate mail. No? <laughs> So Aaron and I have, after thoroughly exhausting the topic of COVID last year, we don't try to dwell on it too much, but I did have a kind of related question about COVID insurance. One is, why didn't any types of insurance cover COVID-related losses? And two, will you see policies that do incorporate that on the other side of the pandemic for future events? So I would say a couple of things. One is that I don't think that it's fully settled yet that insurance policies won't cover some COVID-related losses. I think it's a very tall hill to climb in order to get coverage. There are certain policy wordings that may ultimately pay out. The vast majority won't. There's a few reasons why that is. I mean, ultimately, first and foremost, the insurance policy is written to protect, and this is a property insurance policy, which includes business interruption coverage. So I guess the policy is designed to cover physical loss or damage to the asset. And so the fundamental issue with COVID is the idea that the presence of the virus doesn't actually constitute physical loss or damage. And so that's the first place where there's a fight happening within the insurance industry. Now, there is precedent in Canada and in the U.S. to suggest that the presence of some sort of virus or toxic gas in the case of these precedent legal cases 
to suggest that the presence of some sort of toxin be enough to trigger the idea that there's been a physical loss. And by virtue of the fact that you may have to clean out your property to clean up the virus, there's an idea being that there's a cost involved and there has been damage effectively. And so that's been going to be fought up by lawyers. And I suspect that that's going to take years to resolve. There are test cases happening in the UK, which is really the center of the insurance world, where a number of different wordings are being tried in the Supreme Court. And we might get some better indication as to whether or not those policies will pay out in the future. So I wouldn't give up hope yet. I think companies that have suffered losses should be filing claims. Ultimately, I don't think they should be expecting payouts, but by filing the claim, they're going to reserve their rights and at least keep the door open to some sort of recovery down the road. But again, that is a long road and that's just one barrier. There's other barriers beyond that. There's a few clauses within the insurance policies, one of which is in a lot of companies very smartly identified is that there is Within the business interruption policy, within a lot of the business interruption policies that commercial real estate clients would have, there's a clause saying that there's business interruption coverage for prevention of access to your property by civil or military authority. And so there's an argument to be made that by the city shutting down or locking down or the province locking down, that you've been prevented access to your facility and as a result have triggered the policy. So once again, this is a fight between lawyers and we'll see where it goes. There's a lot of case law out there that suggests that they could work out favorably, but the insurers are defending very well. Wouldn't that just destroy the whole insurance business? Because that just seems like they're going to start covering business interruption or start covering that loss for basically every or the majority of businesses in retail, office. I mean, that's just, do they even have the money to cover those claims? So that's exactly the insurance industry's point, right, is they can't be expected to backstop this global pandemic and be the ones to foot the bill for it. There's just not enough premium written, there's not enough money and reserves within the global insurance world to be able to pay for the losses that have occurred. And so I think as much as politicians would love for the insurers to pay and businesses would love for the insurers to pay, ultimately there has to be some sort of realization that whatever coverage is does exist has to be limited to some degree. And that actually calls into the question about will insurance be able to support or provide coverage for pandemics going forward? And unfortunately, I think the answer is likely to be no. And I think it's because the size of these losses is so enormous that it's very difficult for them to wrap their head around being able to cover something along those lines. If anything, the cost certainly would have to be so astronomical that it's unlikely anybody would pay for it anyway. And so what I think and what we've seen starting to sort of permeate is ideas of government backstopped insurance plans, similar to what happened after 9-11. So after 9-11, terrorism insurance was suddenly unavailable and it was impossible to purchase. And certainly in the U.S., even harder. And so what happened in the U.S., they created something called TRIA, which was a Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, and it backstopped the losses of insurers. And so if another terrorist attack were to occur again, the insurers carry the first primary loss and then the government would backstop and pay for losses over and above that. And so that allowed the market to create a product. And so I think we would have to see something along those lines created in order to see some sort of pandemic-related coverage come back. That said, you might see some limited amounts within a policy. There might be some sort of carve-outs for cleanup costs built into policy wordings. But I just wouldn't expect that you're going to get business interruption coverage to cover your financial loss. Probably go the other way, right? Where they're going to, even in that business interruption clause, they're going to carve out, I will cover you for this, except in the event that it's a pandemic or 
virus related or something. Absolutely. So one of the things that insurers did immediately was try to introduce a COVID related and pandemic related exclusion entirely. So anything related to COVID specifically or pandemic specifically would just be excluded going forward. And a lot of insurers did roll that into their wordings. There's been a lot of pushback on that. And the idea and attempts by brokers to fight back against that has been to try to minimize the extent of the exclusion. But that's a evolving landscape right now. And we'll see how it continues to evolve over the next year. Before we get into the last sort of segment, we talk about some of the more nuanced endorsements and specific insurance policies. Maybe just take a couple of minutes and comment just on what you're seeing in the construction market, because it is a different policy. And how has that coverage been impacted by this hardening market? Yeah, it's been impacted majorly. I mean, the cost of all lines of coverage has increased, particularly one of the ones that's had that we're finding that to be the most difficult to place is professional liability. So not every project would go out and buy professional liability insurance. Architects and engineers buy that themselves. And so a lot most projects would rely upon the corporate professional liability policies of their architects and engineers and other consultants. But some of the larger projects that we're involved in, Clients may want to go out and purchase a project-specific policy to get higher limits than you might get from their checks themselves. That coverage, the cost of it has just skyrocketed and it's very expensive. Builder's risk as well. So covering us the property insurance for construction is called builder's risk. It's also similarly to property insurance just been rising at an astronomical rate. It's really been rising about 20% a quarter for the last two years. And so One of the things that we find is, I mean, it's available. You can get it. You have to expect that you might have larger deductibles, particularly for water damage and design-related losses. So design construction defects related to design errors, you're going to see larger deductibles imposed and potentially more restricted coverage available under the builder's risk. I think one of the things that people have to do is to be prepared that what you may have budgeted for three months ago or six months ago may not be what the budget is today. And you know, we used to put a price in your budget to start of a project and a year later, it would still be accurate. In fact, nine times out of 10, you'd be able to come to the table with insurance that's going to beat that budget. We're finding now that insurance costs are now really stretching budgets. And in some cases, we've had to go back and get a higher loan amount or put additional equity into a deal in order to get it done because the insurance costs have come in double what was expected. And so one of the things I advise clients is when you come up with a figure, make sure you come back and check again in a month or two. Don't just insert something and forget about it. The market is moving quickly enough that you need to be checking in from time to time to make sure you're still accurate. Now, that being said, you should also have your broker give some realistic expectation of the future and carrying contingency within your budget when you're originally preparing it for future increases. And that's something that we haven't had to do in the past, but certainly something that we're doing on a regular basis now. Particularly if you're renewing mid-construction, right? And all of a sudden your premiums are going up significantly over a two or three-year construction period. So that's been a huge issue for us where we've had projects that were placed three years ago that are coming to a close now or the policies are going to lapse in this now hard market condition. And the challenge is that those insurers don't want to extend. So often what's happening at the end of construction project is you placed it with an initial construction period in mind, but now you need an additional three months of insurance. And so normally you'd go back to your broker and say, just get me an extra three-month extension you pay at the original rate and they'd extend for another three months. Now that extension just may not be available. And if they do provide it, the cost, they have you by the neck, they're going to increase the cost dramatically and you could pay a lot to get that coverage extended for three months. And so it's really become a a real issue on projects that are nearing completion that need to have extensions. You talked about insurance, the ground shifting on a pretty consistent basis. 
But what specific areas or clauses in insurance agreements are causing you the most problems? Which ones are we running into the most difficulties in getting satisfied? Certainly, it varies from place to place. Earthquake and flood coverage can be a challenge if you're in an earthquake or flood-exposed area. So properties located along the river in Calgary, which has been known to flood, may struggle to get flood insurance. I mean, Richmond, BC specifically, and parts of the lower mainland in British Columbia and Vancouver are going to have challenges with earthquake and flood insurance. And we've been used to getting full limits of flood and earthquake across the country really for the last 15 years. On the state side, down in California, they're not used to that. They're used to having to purchase insurance with sublimits because they can't afford to place earthquake coverage up to the full replacement cost. And so that might be something we see happening in the future where we have to start thinking about how much we can obtain because as the price increases. But So that would be one area. I guess the other is certainly brokers or insurers are pushing back on things like eliminating co-insurance. They want bigger deductibles. The extent of water damage coverage is really a major one. I keep coming back to that, but it's a huge focus. Can you describe what co-insurance is for anybody that's not familiar? Yeah, so co-insurance was introduced by insurers because what they found was the insured, so the client would ultimately, they may have a million-dollar building and think, you know what, this building's never going to burn to the ground entirely. I'm very unlikely to ever have a full loss. Maybe a million dollars is the wrong example, but say it's a $10 million building. I'm highly unlikely to have a total loss to my building. And so rather than buying a $10 million policy, I'm going to declare a $5 million limit and purchase a $5 million policy and pay premium for that. Well, the insurance companies caught on to that and realized that we're receiving premiums for $5 million worth of insurance, but we have $10 million of property that we're covering. And so they introduced co-insurance. And really what that is, is a mechanism to try to make the insured declare the the actual replacement cost value of their building. And to the extent that they do not insure to at least close, usually it's a 90% co-insurance clause. So how that works is if you declare a replacement cost value that is less than 90% of the actual replacement cost value, you're now considered a co-insurer. You're now taking on part of that risk. And so it's really a penalty. In the event that you're underinsured and you've underdeclared the replacement value, they're going to now make you pay a portion of every loss that is suffered. And so as a lender, certainly, we would want to have that removed. As a insured, you would want to have that removed. It's cheaper to buy insurance with co-insurance on it, but you have to be absolutely confident that the limit that you've declared is accurate. Otherwise, you could find that you have a million-dollar loss, and now you're paying a third of that yourself or more, depending on how badly you've underdeclared your values. So it's something that we look at on a regular basis. And I think something that we've always advised clients to look at. What happens often in the industry is, is an insured purchases an insurance once, they're busy. So the renewal comes in, they just approve the renewal. They're not adjusting their values on an annual basis. And if you're not doing that, the construction cost and reconstruction cost of your asset is changing over time. And so if the last time you adjusted your values was 10 years ago, and now you have a loss and you have co-insurance under your policy, there's a very good chance that you're underinsured and you're going to be eating a portion of that loss yourself. Before Adam rudely interrupted you on the co-insurance question, <laughs> and it was a good question because that was a really good answer. I think most people are confused by co-insurance. I know I am, and I've probably had it explained to me a thousand times. <laughs> but let's just keep going. Like, What are the other things that you're seeing? I mean, things that I'm seeing are you know, that replacement value concept where insurers are just saying, no, no, I'm only going to give you the cash value from mm-hmm. a replacement cost. Other things that we're seeing are just, they're not approving 18-month business interruption, that they're fighting that or charging significant premiums or 
what's another one that I just recently saw where insurers are asking about ages of elevators and boilers. And if the guts of your building are older, they may not even offer insurance or there's significant premiums to that. So what else are you seeing? Are those true? Yeah. Are those one-offs? Or what are the other things that insurers, the levers they're pulling on to try to make it more applicable or more attractive for the insurer? Yeah, so I mean, absolutely. And the replacement cost versus actual cash value discussion, I think, applies mainly for certain types of assets. And it's often those that either have some vacancy, maybe future development plans, or other issues. It could be aging, equipment, it could be a number of things. But certainly, one of the areas that we see if a building's vacant, you may have been able to get replacement costs coverage on it in the past. That's not going to be offered. The best you're going to do is get actual cash value. And obviously, that's a concern because you're going to get the depreciated value in an insurance settlement. And who knows what that's going to be when push comes to shove. So that's certainly one. Within the building itself and what are insurers looking at, there's a number of things. So construction type, occupancy type, the type of protections in place. So location relative to fire and emergency services and then sort of the risk exposures. But aging equipment or surrounding infrastructure certainly can impact an insurer's view of a risk, and they may not offer terms. Now, that being said, if you're encountering that situation, our view has been that coverage is still available. You just have to maybe talk to the right insurance company. And to give you an example, I had a client who had a risk involving wood frame, and their current insurer refused to renew their insurance, gave them three months and said, we're not going to be offering terms for renewal. Their insurance broker went to about 30 different insurance markets, were unable to find terms. And certainly now, eventually they came up with terms and the cost of that insurance was about four or 500 times the original insurance price. And this speaks to why you need to go to multiple brokers. We then went to two other insurance brokers to talk to them about what their view was of the risk and how we could go about getting it insured. And one of the things that ultimately we had to do is we had to bring an insurance company in and they inspected the property. They had to really learn about the improvements and things that were happening on site and the plans of the owners and how they manage the asset. And ultimately, by doing that, we were able to get through another insurance broker, we were able to get insurance placed. Now, it was still at a significant increase over what they had paid before. But it was more like a 50% increase rather than a 500% increase. And ultimately, a part of that was telling the right story to the insurance company. The other part was finding the right insurance company themselves that still had interest in that type of asset. And so that's one of the challenges. And so if you encounter those things, and now the problem is, is that when it's happening for you as the lender, two days before closing really hard to pivot and do anything about it. And so I encourage companies to be out in the market looking for insurance much earlier than they ever would have in the past. Calling your insurance broker two days or a week before closing and saying, please buy me this insurance. We used to be able to do that and things would get done and you'd still get good terms. Nowadays, trying to get the insurance company to even answer the phone the same week can be a challenge. So you really got to give yourself leeway and time in order to try to maneuver around some of these issues. Because coverage, you know, there are challenges and there are terms that are being restricted, but ultimately, for the most part, standard lender requirements are available in the market. So it sounds like there's a lot of jumping through hoops, getting insurance done, as we talked about, as lenders is problematic, for your job is problematic, borrowers, I'm sure, hate spending four and 500% more on insurance when they don't have to. So clearly, the market's hardening. How long does it last Will it soften? What needs to happen in order for it to soften? What's the catalyst? Uh, you know, what's your forward view? Yeah. Or are we sitting here this time next year and you're talking about 
2,000 and 3,000% rises in the premiums? Like, where does it end, really? Well, I mean, I wish I had good news, but looking at what's just happened in the last few months, one of the things that, and I think this was talked about in your last podcast about insurance, you know, reinsurance ultimately drives the overall market. And a lot of reinsurance treaties renew in January and then a bunch more in the summer. The reinsurance renewals were not great. We did see, on average, upwards of 10 to 15% increases at the reinsurance level. And so within Canada, this year, 2021, I would expect that a lot of clients are going to see double-digit increases again. And so if you have no losses, you can expect 10 to 20% increase on premiums this year. If you have bad loss experience, you know the pain continues and can be worse. Now, if you had a 500% increase last year, I don't think you're going to see that again. I think that those large adjustments, once they've happened, you shouldn't expect that to continue. But in any event, the market continues to be difficult. In terms of when is it going to end? I mean, I think a lot of people thought by now it would be over. It was really more of an adjustment than a hard market and that the insurers were really just trying to get rate up in order to get back into a place of profitability. But then COVID was like adding fuel to a fire, right? And not that they paid out losses, but they're getting sued left, right, and center. And so their expenses related to COVID are enormous. Continuing the catastrophic events that happened, it wasn't a great year for hurricane and wildfire. And so all in all, the market continues to move in the wrong direction where prices continue to rise. That being said, there are people that are optimistic that come next year, we should start to see things soften. Hard market cycles don't usually last more than two to three years. And we're kind of at the tail end of that time frame now. So I think the catalyst is you have to start seeing insurers declaring profits in their underwriting year. And, and one of the big drivers of that, I think, is Lloyds of London leading into the hard market for the first time in the history of Lloyds. My understanding is that they lost money three years in a row. And Lloyds has been around for hundreds of years. It's one of the oldest companies in existence. They date back to the shipbuilding days of the growth of the UK. And in any event, they lost money three years in a row and really changed their attitude towards risk. And that helped fuel sort of a shift in appetite globally. And then the increased loss costs and thin rates globally also caused losses at the reinsurance level. So as performance improves and as these rates have increased to a point where profitability returns, I think you'll very quickly see the market shift back into a very competitive state where more capital comes in and the appetite returns and underwriters are looking and competing for on, on rate, which we're all like very much looking forward to. Yeah, you and everybody else. Not the good news that I was hoping for, but at least you're giving us the truth. So we do appreciate that. Fraser, we are out of time, but we appreciate very much you sharing your knowledge and expertise with us as it comes to insurance. I mean, it's always one of those topics that like Aaron and I deal with it daily, but don't understand it the way that somebody like you does. We definitely appreciate the insight being shared. And yeah, if we had you back on in a year from now, we could have a totally different conversation. It sounds like this is a time to change. Yeah. I mean, in either direction, maybe the 2,000% increases you were referring to, or it's softened because we are at the tail end of a hard cycle. But thank you so much for sharing everything today. I want to remind everybody that we are going to do an after show immediately following the music where Aaron and I will share our thoughts of the episode. But for now, Fraser, thanks for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Adam and I kind of digest the conversation we just had with Fraser Roberts from InTech Risk Management. <laughs> We were talking to him after we stopped the interview before he kind of signed off. We jumped on the after show just about how somehow this whole thing that transpired in the insurance market has still hasn't necessarily really resonated with, I think, the industry at large. Like it just, 
and it may just be because the expense isn't major, right? I mean, it's still material, though, in my mind. It seems surprising to me that, you know, I bring it up to friends and colleagues that are in the industry and they go, oh, I hadn't really noticed yet listening to Fraser talk. And I mean, it's a major, major event in the commercial real estate market as it relates to just the ability to obtain insurance. Well, I think the problem is that the market hardening kicked off shortly before the pandemic did. And then every single real estate headline focused on that. And rightfully so. And on that same topic too, I mean, Aaron, you probably remember at the first national conference in January of 2020, we identified insurance as the biggest red flag event for 2020. And then of course, the pandemic really took over the first place spot there. But maybe that's just it. Maybe there's bigger concerns. Maybe there's tenants in arrears. Maybe there's fluctuating interest rates. Maybe there's all the turmoil that the pandemic's caused is just sucking up too much time to worry about. As you said, a line item that even if it doubles is still not going to be overly impactful to your return. Yeah, I guess that's it. I, mean, I still find it very interesting. Like As he said, it's not since 2001, really, that we've seen a hardening market. So that's 20 years. And it's just like a rising interest rate environment that we're kind of seeing right now where we have underwriters, they've been in the business for 10 years, for 15 years, they've never seen something like this. So the same thing in the insurance world. And it's a bit of a paradigm shift or mentality shift to get people to start thinking about what it's like when premiums rise, when coverages get paired back, when coverages are unobtainable. Yeah, it's just, I find it all very interesting. I always like to talk about new terminology. And we had two great ones today. I really like both these terms. Shock events. I like that one. That's new to me. The other one was alpha house. I enjoy both of those new terms. I'm going to try and use them in a sentence <laughs> for next week. <laughs> you can use Alpha House in lots of different ways, though. It doesn't have to be just about the insurance market, right? Open my front door and say, welcome to Alpha House. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting that you mentioned was the earthquake coverage. Because living in Toronto, once in a while, you'll be peripherally aware of a very small earthquake. Last time I remember one was... 2012, I was sitting at an office that was not First National, somewhere else. It was up pretty high, and all of a sudden, it started wobbling, a little sense of vertigo, and it was over, and that was an earthquake. But the amount of time that I spend discussing with people, why do you need earthquake coverage? It's like, well, technically, Toronto is on a fault line. You know, yeah. the probability of falling into it is pretty slim, but it is there. I remember that I had the exact same experience. I got shook and I looked over at my colleague. He's like, did you feel that? I'm like, okay, good. It wasn't just me having an aneurysm or something. And to be honest, like we do accept insurance coverage without earthquake policies in certain jurisdictions. Like there are parts of Quebec that you just cannot get it. Like you can get insurance. Like I've covered for everything but earthquake. And you kind of, at times you have to accept it. You're going to own property in that neighborhood. That's just a risk you're taking. An earthquake hits you, you're not being covered for it. It sounds like, as Fraser kind of indicated, Flood is kind of following that same trend where people just aren't able to get it in certain neighborhoods, which makes perfect sense. Like if I'm an insurance provider, I'm not insuring properties that are on a river that I know floods every 10 years. Like that's just not smart business. There's a risk reward ratio that gets a little whack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we did state it at the end of the recording with Fraser there, but yeah, I think if we had him back on a year from now, we'd see a very different market. So maybe that's something to think about. But I think that is the end of the after show for Aaron and I. So thanks very much for listening and thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.